0: glad to have you with us. Uh, This is the class Pilgrimage. Uh, It's been going on for a little over a month now at Holy Communion. It's our class for newcomers and folks that are seeking and uh, we're talking about various topics in the uh, work of the church and the life of the church and what it means to be part of the Episcopal branch of the Jesus Jesus movement. Uh, My name is Mike. I'm the rector of Holy Communion, an Episcopal Church in University City. Uh, And today we're going to be talking about two things that may seem a little funny to hold together, but I think that they actually help hold one another together. Uh, And those two things are the structure of the Episcopal Church, uh, who we are as a church, and prayer. So I'm going to walk you through a set of slides today. I hope that's okay. Okay. Um, We're going to be talking today about the church as a community of common prayer. The church as a community of common prayer. So the first thing to know is that for Episcopalians or Anglicans, uh, this language of common prayer is specific. Um, It comes from our book of common prayer. Uh, You can see a stack of books of common prayer here. You'd often see a stack of books of common prayer like that uh, in uh, an Episcopal church. But in the Episcopal tradition, when we talk about common prayer, we're talking about this idea that um, we came about just after the advent of the printing press as a denomination in our current configuration. And it became an important part, we'll see, that the people could hold their prayers together in common. Uh, that the priest could say, we're gonna turn to page 355 and begin the service of Holy Eucharist. That we hold our prayers in common. We're, when we say common prayer, we mean that in the sense that we are a tradition that has a specific book called the Book of Common Prayer, but it means that our prayers hold us together in a specific way. Uh, In the Anglican or Episcopal understanding, we don't have a shared dogma or we don't have a shared set of teachings really that hold us together in the same way that our prayers do. So we're going to be talking about prayer as that which holds us together and the structure on which that common prayer sits today. So Let's do a little bit of background on Anglicanism. When we talk about Anglicanism, when we talk about an Anglican way of praying or an Episcopal way of praying, what do we mean? Well, Anglican in Latin just means English. And there are lots of ways and places to date the beginning of the English church, the Anglican church, but certainly one of them and a really prominent one was what was known as the uh, English Mission. Pope Gregory I, the first Benedictine pope, the first monastic pope, uh, sent Augustine of Canterbury, another Benedictine, another monastic, off to England. He wasn't of Canterbury yet. He became of Canterbury when he got there. Uh, And he said something really interesting and specific that some say gives you a little bit of the flavor of Anglicanism, even right from the beginning. In his letter to Augustine, Gregory I says, The temples of the idols in that nation ought not to be destroyed, but let the idols that are in them be destroyed. Let holy water be made and sprinkled in said temples. Let altars be erected. That may seem like a kind of funny thing, but for Anglicans for centuries, there has been this sense in which part of what our tradition is trying to do is to be Christianity in a specific context. That is to say, to hold together the common language and symbols and culture and the tradition. Tradition in one hand, culture and language and symbol in another. And it's from the very beginning of this way of doing Christianity that something like that has been going on. So One of the ways to understand Anglicanism, one of the ways to understand the Episcopal Church is at its best, it's trying to simply be tradition in context, tradition in context. That is to say, when you take the Roman Church out of Rome, what what if it isn't Roman? What if it is specific to a context? And it's been a part of who we are. Now, the other thing that's quietly in here, as I mentioned before, there is something of the English context that also receives this Benedictine character. Remember, Gregory I is the first Benedictine pope, the first monastic pope, and Augustine is a Benedictine missionary. So you both have the church in dialogue with the local culture, and you have the church framed from a particular monastic perspective in England. The Episcopal Church descends from the Church of England. And so we carry this heritage with us. Let's talk a little bit more. So Christianity, let's be honest, didn't start with Augustine in Britain. Uh, It's indigenous. Uh, This is a picture from Iona Abbey. And there have been Christians in the British Isles since the early, early, early centuries of Christianity. When Augustine got there, he actually got in conflict with some of the local bishops. So this idea of this tension between what is the central authority of Christianity and what is context, it's it's a fight that we're still having in some ways today. But it was definitely a fight in the early centuries of Anglicanism. This what is meant to be totally cultural and totally locally determined, and what is centrally decided uh, doctrine or dogma in the church. It's been a dialogue for us throughout our tradition. And obviously it comes to a head like it does for most Christianity in the 1500s. I used to have, um, I used to have, I, I had a theology professor in seminary who was sort of famous for saying, that every 500 years, uh, the church has a yard sale. So if we were together in a classroom, I would ask you, what are the 500-year markers? And so at zero, that would be Jesus. At f- around 500, that's when you have the formulations of the faith, the Nicene and Chalcedonian Creed, the, um, the establishment of scripture uh, really gets solidified by 500, but those first 500 years are really about like, what are the scriptures that hold us together? What are the formulations of faith like the creed? And you jump forward 500 years to 1000, 1000 AD is about the time when you see the schism between the East and the West, between the Orthodox in Constantinople and the Catholics in Rome, the great schism, they called it. 500 years later in 1500, the Reformation. Uh, now, what's interesting about that is then you jump 500 years and where are we except, you know, the century that we're in right now. So that idea of five every 500 years the church has a yard sale, I, I think uh, that uh, Professor Dyer, Bishop Dyer, had something there. But certainly 500 years ago, uh, the Reformation and King Henry Eighth is a major turning point for our faith. Uh, the Episcopal Church, as I said, descends from the Church of England. It's that famous bit about Henry VIII, I am, I am. Henry wanted a divorce from Catherine of Aragon and ended up separating the Church of England from the Church of Rome in order to get it. There's other pieces to this though. It's not just about sex and marriage. Uh, The Reformation in England had a lot to do with that question about local versus central control of doctrine and even property and politics. Henry wanted to be able to determine who his wife was going to be in part because he wanted to be able to determine who his heir was going to be. He wanted to be able to pass on his lineage as the king. And the Pope was, by preventing a marriage, interfering in the local politics of England. There's also a financial dynamic As I said, Augustine and Gregory were both Benedictines. By the time of the English Reformation, one third of the land of England was held by Benedictine monasteries. Now, whether Henry was justified in going and taking that land is a big question around history, but there is a particular Benedictine monastic character at the time of the Reformation and many of those Benedictines came along with Henry. Many of the early bishops in the Church of England had been Benedictines. And so there is this Benedictine character that's in the background for Christianity in England, kind of generally. So you've got this tension, what is local? What is contextual and what is central? What is the authority? What is the tradition? And this question of Benedictine right in the midst of the reformation. Now, when Henry reformed the church, it happened in a way that was different than what happened on the continent. Unlike with Luther, unlike with Calvin, there wasn't a central doctrinal point, apart from this question of local control or not, that really drove the English Reformation. We'll get to that in a minute, but it's important to know there was no, you know, like, There were no particular doctrinal, there weren't any theses nailed to a door. There was this quite ongoing question of local versus uh, foreign control of the church that was at the heart of Henry's Reformation. But for Anglicans, there is a central character, not as strong of a central character as a Luther, as a Calvin. But when we talk about prayer, somebody who is As influential, I would argue, and that was Thomas Cranmer. And Thomas Cranmer was made the Archbishop of Canterbury, so after Augustine, Canterbury becomes uh, the heart of the Church of England, and the Archbishop in Canterbury is a lord spiritual in the House of Lords, but is also seen as the first among the equals of the um, bishops. And so Cranmer gets elevated from relative obscurity into this post, and There's a lot to say about where he is. There's been a lot of debate about how reformed he was, who he really followed on the English continent. Um, But one thing that's indisputable was that Cranmer was a poet, and he cared a great deal about prayer happening in the language of the people. And so Cranmer is the uh, architect of the first prayer books, taking what were the little books that the priest had to get through the services, to get through the offices, and putting them to the printing press, giving them to the people, and putting them in the common language. I wanted to share just one of my favorite Cranmer prayers. Cranmer took a bunch of the Latin and translated it. He also wrote quite a bit of his own. And this is one of my favorite Thomas Cranmer prayers. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a collect. That's one of the prayers that we say. Uh, just at the beginning of the Eucharistic service is meant to sort of collect us together. Uh, In our next class, when I go through the Eucharist, we'll notice where the collect comes in. But you get a sense of that poeticness of Cranmer uh, as he brought the language of prayer into the language of the people. So the other thing that Cranmer did in the prayer book was to take that Benedictine character of the church. Now remember a huge portion of England is owned by monasteries. If you go visit England, well, whenever the pandemic is over, if you go off and visit uh, the country that is sort of the spiritual home of the Episcopal church, you'll go to all of these cathedrals which were monastic foundations. And Cranmer wanted to take the prayer life of the monasteries And he didn't just want to put the language of the prayers in the hands of the people. He wanted to put the rhythms of prayer in the hands of the people. And one can question how realistic Cranmer was being, but Cranmer tried to distill down all of the services that would happen in the monastery and put them in the hands of the people in the Book of Common Prayer. It's been said that in Cranmer's dream world, uh, the church in the village would have been the place where everybody started and finished their days. Everybody would have gotten up, had their breakfast, gotten the cows out, and then gone off to church for morning prayer, would have gone back out to the fields, come back for noonday prayer, would have gone back out to the fields, come back for even song, and then you might have said compliment at home. But in the monastic office, there there are several different versions of the monastic office, but in a very big, and this is uh, the the rhythm of the Trappist monastery in Kentucky. Uh, you wake up early, early in the morning for vigils, and then you come back to the chapel at 6.30 for lauds, then you might have Eucharist. Um, then it, there's another office, you go back to the chapel at 8.30 in the morning, you come back for at noon, another one at three, another one at six, and then right before you go to bed, you go to the chapel again. Cranmer had this idea that yeah, the common working person couldn't go to the church that much but that every day might be shaped by a rhythm of prayer. Our Book of Common Prayer in the Episcopal Church starts with morning prayer. If you open up, once you get past the index, the table of contents, you're gonna find morning prayer as the beginning of the Book of Common Prayer. Cranmer wanted this to be part of our daily rhythm. The Book of Common Prayer offers this idea of a rhythm of prayer that is in the hands and in the language of the people. And it's the 1979 Book of Common Prayer. So Cranmer gives us our first prayer book. There have been at least six since then. The current one for the Episcopal Church was finished in 1979. There's discussions going right now in the church about whether we're going to have a new, whether and when we're going to have a new Book of Common Prayer. I can tell that there are some people watching. And so I am watching the comments. If you want to ask a question at any time while I'm broadcasting this live, that's great. Would love to have your questions. Would love to have your comments. If you want on Monday evening, there's a group of us that gather to talk about these prayer, to talk about prayer, to talk about pilgrimage. Uh, that's another place where you can ask questions too. But I'm, I'm happy to receive a question at any time if you're watching live. So after Henry, many of you know, there was this back and forth and back and forth. Uh, Henry's reformation, it happened in the midst of a bunch of political difficulty. Um, And when Henry died, that difficulty continued. Edward, his son, uh, the heir that he had, all of those wives to finally have the heir didn't live for very long. And so it famously, the church swung back and forth under his two daughters, under Mary, sometimes known as Bloody Mary, the church swung back and became Catholic. Uh, Archbishop Cranmer, or along with two other bishops, Latimer and Ridley were burned at the stake in Oxford. It was a difficult period of history. And then Elizabeth, Mary's sister takes over and she swings back to uh, the English church, um, removes the Roman control of the church again. Elizabeth reigns for a very long time the Elizabethan age, they call it. And under Elizabeth, the church really comes into its own, comes into its own identity. Elizabeth uh, has a theologian uh, close to the court, a man named Richard Hooker. And Hooker sets what will be the theological basis for Anglicanism. He coins the term the via media. That is to say that Anglicanism does not understand itself as a fully Protestant church, nor does it understand itself as a fully Roman Catholic church, but is as a way in between the extremes, a way in between the middle way, the via media. So I have up on your screen pictures from uh, where I used to live in Washington, DC. These are actually two Episcopal churches within a few miles of each other that get along really well, but that do things very differently. On the left is St. Paul's in K Street in Washington, D.C., which is really one of the most Anglo-Catholic churches in the United States. Uh, there are always three sacred ministers. Chanting happens the whole time. Everything happens in Elizabethan English or Latin. There's incense swung everywhere. You can see that right there in the middle underneath the gold crucifix is a tabernacle where um, the Eucharist is kept between services where it is reverenced. And the clergy face that east wall the whole time. That's Anglo-Catholicism. It, it's sort of pre, almost pre-Vatican II, except in English most of the time. Uh, Catholicism, which is part of the tradition. On the other extreme, on the right, is Christ Church in Alexandria. And you can see there the altar is like this little table just sort of shoved in underneath that central wine glass pulpit. Uh, This is a very historic church. George Washington went to church at Christ Church Alexandria. uh, And at Christ Church Alexandria, the normal service was morning prayer for a very long time. It was what was called low church or more evangelical. And these two churches get along really pretty well these days, especially. Uh, They have similar views on marriage equality for LGBT people. Uh, They now have similar views on ordained ministry um, and, and ordaining women. But they have a very radically different way of worshiping, and they're held together in the Episcopal Church, which sees itself as the via media between the extremes. So what happens when we come to America? We've just seen two American churches. You may have noticed I've been saying the word Anglican a great deal. Uh, In the United States, we don't tend to call ourselves Anglicans. There's a group that are calling themselves Anglicans as a way that's a whole other discussion, but uh, Anglicans in America are technically called Episcopalians because Anglican in Latin means English. Anglican in Latin means English. And so we found a different way of distinguishing ourselves. Um, at the time of the American Revolution, uh, the other big denomination in the United States were the Presbyterians. And so we chose Episcopal. Uh, Presbyterians, uh, Presbyterian in Greek, Presbyteros, means elder. And Episcopal, Episcopos, means overseer or bishop. And so Episcopal just means the church with the bishops, as opposed to the Presbyterians who didn't have bishops, who didn't believe in Episcopal governance, that is they didn't have bishops. We were the church that did have bishops in the United States. And this was remember pre really easy free worship for Roman Catholics. So we were the church with the bishops is all that meant. Um, It also hearkened to the church in Scotland was not the established church in Scotland. The Presbyterian church was, the Calvinist Presbyterian church was. And there was an Episcopal church of Scotland to distinguish themselves. And so we borrowed the Episcopal title from Scotland. So William White uh, was really one of the leaders in the early Uh, Episcopal Church who helped set the character for who we are and in many ways set the character for what Anglicanism would be as it grew to be a global church. So William White was both the first and the fourth presiding bishop, that's the senior bishop in the Episcopal Church, um, in both 1789 and then this other period from 1795 to 1836. He was also the first and fourth president of the House of Deputies. We'll get into the the House of Deputies and House of Bishops in a moment. William White was also the chaplain to the Continental Congress. And if you're an early American history nerd, you might know William White as one of the most prolific letter letter writers of the early American period. He was Benjamin Franklin's priest at Christ Church, Philadelphia. Um, He was chaplain to the US Senate, but White wrote letters with almost everyone. And many of them are important sort of uh, first documents of what life was like in the American colonies and during the revolution. Uh, His writings with George Washington, with Franklin, with many others, help us get a sense of what was going on in folks' minds at the time. And you can still visit his house if you go to historic Philadelphia. But William White, when it comes to the church, had a really important role. And there's another bishop that often gets quoted uh, from the life of the early Episcopal Church. He actually, this other bishop even appears in the musical Hamilton. Uh, His name is Samuel Seabury. He was the first bishop in the Episcopal Church, the first bishop of Connecticut. but I would argue that William White actually sets more of the character for what the Episcopal Church is about. And partly because he's a revolutionary, partly because he's not like Samuel Seabury in Hamilton is very sadly talking about how they should um, bow to the King. William White's a revolutionary and he's got the capacity to imagine um, what a future church could look like. And for Episcopalians, this sets us up for a new phase in our life as a church. And I wanna read you just a quote from William White describing what the church ought to be like. The power of electing a superior order of ministers ought to be in the clergy and the laity together, they both being interested in the choice. In England, bishops are appointed by the civil authority, which was a usurpation of the crown at the Norman conquest, but since confirmed by acts of parliament. What he's saying there? In England, in the Church of England, even to this day, the there's a Crown Appointments Commission that selects bishops. Uh, Officially, bishops are selected by the queen or the king, whoever's the the ruler of England at the time, the the, uh, monarch at the time selects them officially. They've deputized that out now. But in the United States, William White restores us to the early church tradition of electing our bishops. We elect our bishops. And that actually, when he does that, in the American church, uh, that sets a tone for what Anglicanism will largely become outside of England. That is to say that we have a democraticness to us. So in England you have this question of what is context, what is tradition. Uh, there's also this Benedictine character in Anglicanism. In the United States the Episcopal Church has a revolutionary character and brings with it this question of democratic government. So um, William White, as I said, was president of the House of Deputies and the presiding bishop, but he and the early church leaders in the United States set us up at our structure of governance. So they create something called the General Convention, which is a governing body for the church that meets every three years. It'll be four this time because Uh, I'm I'm actually elected as a deputy this time from Missouri, but we were supposed to meet in this summer, 2021, but because of the pandemic, obviously, we decided to push back for a year. So, um, But in 2021 would have been a general convention year. In normal times, it meets every three years. Every nine years, the presiding bishop is elected. They're elected to a nine-year term. The current presiding bishop is up there in the corner, um, the most Reverend Michael Curry. You may have heard him deliver the sermon at Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's wedding. Um, And then in the other corner, right next to me here, uh, that is a picture of the House of Deputies, which is one of the largest elected bodies in the world uh, every diocese of the Episcopal Church selects at their convention for clergy and four lay people and alternates to represent them at the general convention. And then we have votes and we vote on quite a bit of things. Um, we vote on uh, questions like our public positions. So I want to pull us back to common prayer for a second. If we understand the church to be a body of people who pray in common, the church can take some public positions. We can say that our shared life of common prayer, our shared discernment as we follow Jesus leads us to take a position. Some of our most important positions right now are positions that we have taken on on racism, on gun violence. Uh, We have been working really hard to repudiate our our racist history in the Episcopal church. Uh, Our presiding bishop has become a leading voice in Christian movements against racism, against systemic um, discrimination of all kinds. And so the church though can vote and set policy on those things. We also vote on things like clergy pensions and stuff like that. Um, But then if we wanna talk about doctrine, if we wanna talk about belief, in the Episcopal church, we think of those as matters of prayer. And we're in the midst right now of a discussion about our common prayer. We, we may be putting together a new prayer book in the next, oh, 12, 15 years. But those questions of doctrine, those questions of prayer, even the hymnal, in order to pass, they have to go through two conventions. We have this sense that one voting convention is not enough. That if we wanna change the words we pray or we wanna change the words we pray twice by singing, We've got to vote them through twice. It can't just be one body of elected deputies. You got to vote it through twice. Uh, So we have a general convention that does all sorts of um, church governance questions. I said the word diocese. I know that the Catholics that are in this, the former Catholics that are in this class, all just said, okay, you are all organized by diocese. And some of the evangelicals went, wait, what? So, this is a picture of part of the United States and diocese. In the Episcopal Church, we are subdivided, not just as a national body and then local churches, but into dioceses. And dioceses are headed by a bishop. So, this is our bishop who was just consecrated in 2020, elected in 2019, uh, Bishop Dion K. Johnson. Uh, he, bishop Johnson is the bishop of our diocese, which is the Diocese of Missouri. When a diocese has the same name as a state, either it's fully contiguous with the state, like you can see Colorado, my home state, just just over here, just over my, I guess that would be my right shoulder, or it's my left shoulder, anyway, just here, this rectangle. Diocese, Colorado, one state, one diocese. Some states are subdivided. Missouri has both west and east Missouri, and Missouri as a diocese is the older of the diocese, so it just calls itself Missouri, and then the diocese based in Kansas City calls itself West Missouri, but there are—I don't even remember how many a 100 and some dioceses in the Episcopal Church. Some of them are foreign dioceses. Um, so we're in the United States of America, but the Episcopal Church is also in Honduras. It's in Ecuador. It's in Venezuela. It's in Haiti. Haiti is our largest diocese by membership. There are more Episcopalians in Haiti than in any diocese in the United States. Taiwan, I'm trying to think if there are other, I don't remember what all, but but there are dioceses of the Episcopal Church in other countries. So we are we tend not to use the Episcopal Church USA anymore because we want to honor that we are the Episcopal Church that's actually an international church. So um, this is Dion Johnson. Our diocesan convention elected the bishop in 2019. As I said, we at Holy Communion elected our electors moment, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Bishop Johnson can set local policy. We felt that a lot this year, uh, as the bishop has been the one setting quite a few of the policies around COVID-19. The bishop can also set certain policies Uh, locally about what's permitted and what's not permitted in worship, and the bishop is in charge of uh, clergy discipline, and the bishop's office helps with uh, the deployment of clergy. So the most um, familiar, probably the easiest uh, unit of the church to understand, is the parish. I mean, easy in some ways, but the one we're most familiar with. The parish is the church where we worship uh, and where we have membership. Uh, So in our case, that's Holy Communion, Um, To be an official member of the Episcopal Church is tricky because it's it's really a question of voting membership. So technically, to be a member, to join the Episcopal Church, you have to be a communicant in good standing, which means that you're 16 years or older. You've been confirmed um, by the bishop or received if you were confirmed in another tradition. And you've been to the Eucharist at least three times in the last calendar year. And your letter of membership is at a church. So if you are a member of another Episcopal church, you won't actually be a member of Holy Communion until you request that your membership be transferred. Uh, that's true if you were an ELCA Lutheran or some of the other churches that we're in communion with as well. You can just transfer your membership. If, you're a pres- if you grew up Presbyterian and you want to become a member, you would need to be received into the church by the bishop. Um, Same actually goes for the Roman Catholic Church, because we're not in full communion, and so we would need to have you be received by the bishop. A local priest actually can't make you a member, only that you belong to more than just your parish. But you have to belong to that local church and to the diocese in order to vote at the local um, level. At the local level, we are governed by not just a clergy person, but by a vestry. And you can see a picture. There's actually a couple of years old. A couple of those members aren't a vestry anymore. But we have a nine-member vestry, um, and they govern the church. They're actually the, the nonprofit board in charge of uh, finances and, and all sorts of things. Uh, they are elected by the annual meeting, which just happened last Sunday, Uh, the 31st of January for us. And that's me at the annual meeting, standing out in the snow. We had to have it in the parking lot uh, because of the way our bylaws were written. But the vestry is elected by the annual meeting. The vestry, when there's an absence of a rector, if I were to take a job in another church or um, if I were to retire, the vestry is also in charge of the process to call the new rector. But once the rector is in place, the rector has tenure. So there are specific things that a rector can and can't do, um, specific things around money and sex and and discipline and things like that, that a rector can't do. But the rector has a certain academic freedom to preach. So the vestry can't just get rid of a rector because they don't like the sermons. All the rest of the staff in our system serve at the pleasure of the rector. So we're in the midst of calling another priest at Holy Communion after our assistant rector, Lori. Anzalotti um, took another call to be the vicar of a church in Eureka, and right now I'm, we just finished receiving applications. It's technically my call, um, that person will serve at my pleasure, but I am consultative, so I've got a few members on the vestry who will be joining me in the interviews and will be helping me make the decision. Uh, but I wanted to give you a little bit of a sense of the structure. The big news in the Episcopal Church is you have a vote. You have an important vote that matters, not just the vote with your feet, do you show up or not, but your vote actually matters in who is elected. And not just at the local vestry, but you also elect the the representatives to the diocesan convention. So our annual meeting in 2019, it was a big deal to elect those electors because they got to vote on who was gonna be the next bishop, um, which just, as I said, happened in 2019. So, to make things more complicated, in the Episcopal Church, as I said, we're descended from the Church of England. We're also still in relationship with the Church of England. Uh, The break off of the Episcopal Church in the United States in the early colonies was the, well, after the Revolutionary War in the early American period, was the first time there was an autonomous church separate from Britain. And it began something known as the Anglican Communion. So the Episcopal Church is fully autonomous. Uh, we make our own decisions together in general convention. In recent years, we felt that autonomy because the Episcopal Church, along with a few other churches, like the Church of Canada, the Church in Scotland, has been ready to move on LGBTQ inclusion faster than some of the other provinces, other autonomous churches of the Anglican communion. And what we have figured out is We really are autonomous. We can make those decisions at the level of the church-wide level. So we are in relationship with the Archbishop of Canterbury, the first among equals. Uh, We're in communion, but we are not governed. Um, The Archbishop of Canterbury has a certain moral authority, can preach sermons that folks tend to listen to, but cannot tell us not to do something or to do something. That has to be decided by our general convention as a church, by, you know, with the leadership of the presiding bishop and the president of the House of Deputies. All of that, though, is in this, we're in this funny tension with the Anglican communion. Um, What's interesting is we are a colonial church. Uh, I'm going to say a bit more about that history in a moment, but because of the particular history of British colonialism and because of the evangelical history of the church in the colonial period and later, we are actually the third largest body of Christian believers in the world. So the largest is obviously the Roman Catholic Church. After that, if we were all together, I would ask you to guess. Anybody wanna put a guess in the comments? The second largest church is the Orthodox Church. It's the Orthodox Church. So the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox. But after that, it's the Anglicans, not the Lutherans, not the Baptists, not the Methodists. Globally, Anglicans are the third largest church. There are about 85 million Anglicans around the world, a huge portion of them in Africa. And the other thing that we found, besides that we're autonomous, is that our bonds are stronger than our attempts at schism. We both have not figured out a way for the wider church to discipline member churches like the Episcopal Church. There were some that really wanted to discipline the Episcopal Church, but we've not been able to break up our our bonds either. Even though there were um, bishops consecrated to form alternative churches in the United States, even amidst all of that, we have found that our common prayer as Anglicans is stronger than attempts to break us apart which is just an interesting moment to be an Anglican. There's been a lot of press in recent decades about the Episcopal church and its relationship to the wider Anglican communion. But part of what we found is our tradition of praying together seems to be stronger than attempts to divide us. So let's pull back. All of that structure means that we are never alone when we pray. In the midst of a pandemic, that may be one of the most important points to land on. We're not alone when we pray. Even if we're praying alone, you know, as Jesus says in our closet with the door shut, we are part of the common prayer of the church. In the prayer book there are, um, and we'll go through on Monday night a little bit, how to access these, but offices, that if you follow the rhythm of the office, if you pray morning prayer, if you pray evening prayer, if you follow along with the daily scripture selections, um, which are in a calendar in the back of the Book of Common Prayer, or helpfully on the pilgrimage page, um, or on our recommended resources page for Holy Communion, we've got a link to an app from Mission St. Clair that'll just put the prayer offices and the scriptures for the day right there in your phone or on your tablet, so you don't have to go searching through three books. But you can go searching through three books. I am often searching through three books when I do morning and evening prayer. But there is this way that we are all held in common by our rhythm of daily prayer. Um, We're getting close to Lent. You might think about the daily office, as a discipline for Lent, as a way of entering in. There's a cycle of scripture for Sundays. You've noticed on Sundays, the code, you don't get to pick their readings. There's a cycle of scripture for every day that goes with the cycle of prayer. And there's also a cycle of saints. There's actually several cycles of saints right now because the Episcopal Church in all of its wisdom hasn't been able to choose which set of saints calendars um, is our saints calendar right now. So you have options. You have a lot of holy people to choose from right now. We pray together first in the Episcopal Church. The rest really is just details. We pray together first. The other thing that I will say about Anglicanism and this tension, but I think it's a prayerful tension, is that because of our history, because of the difficulties of our history, there's an invitation to comprehensiveness. I mean, often that has been taught as, you know, what I showed on a slide earlier, high church and low church, more Catholic, more evangelical, uh, that you can bring Mary and the saints and the rosary with you and come into the Episcopal church as a Catholic, and you can bring guitars and hands raised and amens to sermons. Um, You can bring those with you into worship as an Anglican. You don't have to let go of the prayer traditions that have meant something to you but that's not just what we mean by comprehensiveness. We have held together difficult tensions, high church, low church, Republican, Democrat. But as we have looked into our history, we are also finding that we have held together difficult tensions beyond just the ones that you've been taught about. The Episcopal Church, it. I wanna say it's come to light, but it's not even real. We're owning the fact of our history in some new ways. We were the majority slaveholder church. That is to say the majority of slaveholders in the American South were Episcopalians. I wanna let that sink in for a second. The Episcopal church is often associated with sort of the country club church, the, the old money church we were also the majority slaveholder church. Our first rector at Holy Communion was a Confederate chaplain. You can see him just next to me there. That's Patrick Robert. Uh, Robert was a Confederate chaplain. He served in the Confederate army before moving to St. Louis after the war and becoming the rector of Holy Communion. Uh, Dr. Robert and I actually went to the same seminary. He was a graduate of the Virginia Theological Seminary which was captured really quickly after the beginning of the Civil War. The buildings at VTS uh, actually served as a union hospital. Uh, The football field served as a graveyard for union dead before they were moved to Arlington Cemetery. And Walt Whitman was a nurse at the Virginia Seminary Hospital there. Um, But Robert was a graduate of Virginia Seminary, was a son of the South and was a Confederate. We also though, we also have been historically a black church. Our Methodist sisters and brothers, when, um, when there, were, there was more uh, emancipation when, at, toward the beginning of the life of the Episcopal Church, uh, made the decision not to at first ordain African-Americans. The Episcopal Church made the opposite choice. Coming up in a few days, we celebrate the feast of Absalom Jones, the first African-American Episcopal priest. And from the early days of the Episcopal Church, we had black churches. Our presiding bishop, Michael Curry though, elected just a little while ago, within the last nine years, I don't remember the exact year, it was 2015, I think. But Michael Curry was the first African-American elected as presiding bishop. What's wild to me though is that um, we're going to be watching this February uh, at Holy Communion a documentary that's coming out uh, on PBS just called The Black Church. And Michael Curry is one of the leaders that they're interviewing. So, in our church comprehensiveness, you can think of that as this like comprehensiveness between Republicans and Democrats or between high church and low church or, you know, between one group of white people divided from another group of white people. But we've held together in the Episcopal Church, slaveholders, and black freedom fighters. Some of the most important figures in the civil rights movement were Episcopalians. Holy Communion was the first integrated church in St. Louis, in the Diocese of Missouri. Many of our black members grew up in black Episcopal churches, which were important institutions in the life of black St. Louis. To be an Anglican is to enter into a difficult comprehensiveness. The previous Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, um, said that to be baptized was to enter into a group of solidarities not of our own choosing. But there's an invitation there. When you're in prayer, when you're in prayer in common, to realize that you are united to a body of believers that you didn't choose, that is maybe more diverse than you imagine at first, and to allow your siblinghood in that body of believers, your membership in that body of Christ, to challenge your prayer life, to make you think of yourself as a little bit bigger than the context in which you find yourself. There's an invitation in our prayer, an invitation in our structure to be more comprehensive, more inclusive, and tied to folks who are otherwise divided from us. So it may seem a strange thing to talk about prayer and church structure together. And I do wanna take just a moment to say, I tend to find the daily office of the church, morning prayer, evening prayer, Compline, the, the structure that Cranmer put together that honored the Benedictine heritage that put prayer in the language of the people, I tend to find that that structure is not the fullness of my prayer life, it's rather the foundation. In the midst of my morning prayer or evening prayer, I often tend to use some space and sometimes I'll leave out a prayer or two to make a little more room for silence, for contemplation, for centering prayer. If you want an introduction to all of those, I'd invite you uh, to head to the holycommunion.net and the pilgrimage page specific for this class. Just below where this video is going to appear is a video from Richard Rohr, who's been one of the teachers I've followed most closely in contemplative prayer. But this idea of contemplatio, this idea of finding a way into silence to be quiet and present to God, You can do that with silence, you can do that with chant, you can do that with song, you can do that with scripture study with Lexio Divina like we did in uh, the last class that we were together. But that this foundation, this structure of the church, this structure of the prayer book for me holds up, serves as a foundation for my life of prayer. And it serves as a set of roots that connects me more fully to those around me. Thanks for spending some time with me as we talk about common prayer. As I said, at holycommunion.net, if you go under education and pilgrimage, you'll find this class's page. Uh, On that page, you'll find a list of resources, a link to buy your own book of common prayer, uh, some resources about what the prayer book tradition is, a a step-by-step way through the prayer book. There's a great little book called Hour by Hour, not quite as thick as the prayer book, and and the the prayers themselves in it are a little bit faster to get through. If you really do wanna try that, you know, morning, noonday, evening prayer, it may be a simpler way to get through that. Um, And there's a couple of links to contemplative prayer resources, both Richard Rohr's book, Everything Belongs, And Cynthia Bourgeau, who is a teacher with Richard, uh, and she wrote one of the best books I know about centering prayer, Um, really one of the best introductions to that. So thanks for spending some time with me. Uh, Those of you who are enrolled in pilgrimage, and you're welcome to sign up if you weren't before, uh, we'll get together on Monday evening to have a conversation about prayer. The Zoom is already up there on that page. It'll go out via email as well. And in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll have the next video class, and it'll be a class on Eucharist. Uh, So stay tuned for that. We'll be making our way through Eucharist. So thanks so much for taking some time with me. Really appreciate it. Didn't get any questions in the comments, but that's okay. You can ask questions on Monday night or shoot them to me um, over email. I would love to be in conversation with you. All right. Thanks so much. Hope to see you next time.